crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. For today's program, I'm visiting the excavation areas of Dr. Elot Mazar here in the city of David. By now, you've likely heard of her death last week. Now, Dr. Mazar was really the most important excavator of Jerusalem of her generation, following on from her grandfather, Professor Benjamin Mazar, and then after him, Dr. Yigal Shiloh, both of Hebrew University. Now, she's an irreplaceable figure, both because of her depth of understanding and experience in Jerusalem archaeology and also her courage and determination to conduct archaeological excavations in this city, which can be quite difficult. Now, no doubt We Watch Jerusalem are going to do a large feature on Dr. Mazar and her life and impact. There's just so much to talk about regarding her discoveries. And, of course, the way that she used the Bible to aid in her archaeological discoveries as well. But for today's program, I thought it might be worthwhile to document her discoveries from just my personal experience, being present on her excavations, starting in 2006 here in the Palace of David, all the way through to her last excavation in 2018 on the Ophel. But first, a bit of history. Starting in 1968, Elat's grandfather, Professor Benjamin Mazar, started excavating at the southern wall of the Temple Mount. These were the largest excavations in Israel to the, at that time. Now, later on in that same year, Herbert W. Armstrong, president of Ambassador College in Pasadena, California, approached Benjamin Mazar and asked if he needed assistance on that excavation. Now, although Benjamin Mazar did need a little bit of convincing from his wife, he did agree and started a partnership that Elat Mazar has described as the most important contribution to the continuation of those excavations, becoming the largest financial sponsor and providing hundreds of student volunteers over the next decade of excavation. Now, in 1980, students from Ambassador College also joined the City of David excavations with Dr. Yigal Shiloh. Now, these massive excavations continued until Dr. Shiloh's untimely death in 1987. At the time, Elot Mazar was a master's student at Hebrew University, and she was a square supervisor on that excavation as well. Now, around the time of Shiloh's death, Elot Mazar was in conversations with her grandfather about the possible location of King David's palace. Now, being here, just above the stepstone structure that we'll see later on, that palace, she believes, should be located in this area. In 1997, Dr. Mazar published her theory in Biblical Archaeology Review, locating where the palace should be based on the biblical description and also Jerusalem's geography. And eight years later, she finally found a donor and started digging. She found one through the Shalem Center in Jerusalem, and specifically Roger and Susan Hertog. Now, within the first few days of that excavation, 2005, she found this stone. After removing less than a meter of dirt, she hit the first temple period. Now, from that point on, King David's palace was well on its way to being discovered. By the remains of the first season, large remains from the first temple period were discovered, with Dr. Mazar being able to date some of them to the hundred years or so around King David's time. Thus, she said, King David's palace is the best possible su suggestion for this structure. Now, during that season, another remarkable discovery was made. The seal impression of a leading figure who tried to put Jeremiah the prophet to death. Right now, I'm going to show you a clip that we produced a few years ago describing that discovery. The thing is that the bulla was hiding among the stones here, mm -hmm. and in between the stones. And uh, it was hiding, and therefore it was saved. And uh, Yoav, who was the area supervisor, uh, he's, uh, by his occupation, he's numismatics. He's expert of numismatics, the coins. And he was like catching, 
with his very sharp eye the existence of the bulla. And the thing is that the sun is coming from the east. Right. And it was lightening the bulla in such a way that he could see that something is written on it. And the bulla is really very tiny, you know, it's like it's one centimeter diameter. So he took it and on the spot he could read ancient Hebrew letters saying Shin Lamed Mem Shalem. Shalem, something Shalem. At the beginning we said, oh, maybe it's Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim. And then we, we didn't uh, continue and then at home I took it and after very light cleaning, uh, it was possible to read three lines saying Le'yehochal Ben Shalem Yahu Ben Shuvi. It's Yehochal, son of Shalem Yahu, son of Shuvi. Three generations. And, uh, and then I was looking in the Concordancia. Right. And I said, who is Yohal Ben Shalem Yahu? <laughs> and then it appeared that Yohal Ben Shalem Yahu is a well-known minister at the time of Tzidkiyahu, at the time of the prophet Jeremiah. Shortly after the discovery of King David's Palace was made in 2005, the college I attended, Herbert W. Armstrong College of Edmond, Oklahoma, reached out to Dr. Mazar. President of the college, Stephen Flurry, wrote to Dr. Mazar and explained that though Mr. Armstrong was now dead, we wished to continue that partnership of excavation. And to our delight, Dr. Mazar was more than enthusiastic to rekindle that relationship that had started almost 40 years earlier, but had laid dormant since 1986. Now, uh, at the start, the contribution of the college was quite small. College Chancellor Gerald Flurry decided to send just three students over to assist as volunteers on the dig of Dr. Mazar here at the palace. So on October 21st, 2006, the three of us arrived to the excavation to a very welcoming Dr. Elot Mazar. We arrived at 8.30 in the morning, a bit late uh, for the start of the day since digging normally starts at 6.30. However, we had only arrived at Jerusalem the night before and we came just after a short bit of rest. And we were put to work straight away on phase two of the Palace of David excavations. Now I was put in this larger area underneath the leadership of Dr. Yoav Fahi and also Dr. Ariel Vinderbaum. Now they were actually given their doctorates after this experience, uh, so they weren't doctors at that point. Now for the first few months we were getting rid of meters of unimportant dirt that you can see behind me. But by December we reached a massive layer of boulders, large boulders from about 2,000 years ago over the entire area. And these boulders were hard to remove, they had to be smashed and hauled out. But importantly, they protected the more precious material from the time of King David underneath them. And I'm standing in this location because this is where I got to excavate uh, from December through January 2006, along with my fellow student, Jeremy Kokomize. Now, I'm going to read some of the portions of my journal from back then. So please understand, this was just a young person who had just turned 21 that didn't know much about archaeology. This is what I wrote from Thursday, December 21st, 2006. Got to work a bit early today and went straight to work in my section. Jeremy and I are working in the area from the wall of the pools across from the stepstone structure, which is to my right. Dr. Mazar said we're walking, working in the most important place of the dig, so that's pretty cool. We are looking for the side of the wall that connects the large stepstone structure to David's palace. If we can find it, that would be an absolutely, hu absolutely huge for the, for the theory that this is the side of King David. It would prove that the building above must have been huge in size. Continuously throughout the day, Dr. Mazar was coming over telling us to go faster and faster and that she must find the connection point to the wall. And although we didn't find it today, Dr. Mazar really wants us to find it on Sunday. Now, if you've worked on her digs, 
you know that Doctor demanded pace from her excavators. And that's fine if you're a digger, but it makes life a whole lot more difficult if you're one of the area supervisors. But we were looking for the wall that would make up the other side of the famed stepstone structure, which is actually over to my right today. Now, as it would, would turn out over the next few weeks, we kept on removing layer and layer of dirt against this wall, revealing more and more courses of stones from King David's time. But before we get there, I want to mention one of my highlights of that dig with Dr. Mazar. This is from January 31st. Today was awesome because it was, I was still struggling in a bit to understand my area. Seeing this, Dr. Mazar came over and offered her help. She basically asked if I would mind if she came in and started digging next to me and I would clean away the dirt that she created. We worked together for about half an hour, lots of fun. She is so energetic and knows what she is doing. Now, I remember this as if it was yesterday. Dr. Mazar is just wielding the blade of my trowel like a samurai. For any, anyone else, I would have said she was doing something reckless. But the way that she pulled every scoopful of dirt with confidence and grace, I could barely keep filling the buckets. I knew that she knew what she was doing just right here below this wall. Now, for me, this was seeing a master at her craft. And generally, by the time you become the excavation director, you do very little actual digging. But here on the other side of the massive six meter wide eastern wall of the Palace of David, Dr. Mazar was still working hard in the dirt. Now, after which, we could date this wall to sometime during the time of King David. This was the eastern wall of the palace, one of the most important discoveries from that second season of digging. With the second phase of the palace excavation finished in February 2007 and the next phase beginning to be, uh, start in September, fellow student Edwin Trables and myself went to work in Dr. Elamazar's archaeological office for a few months, processing the discoveries from the previous season. Now, sometime during that summer, Dr. Mazar asked Edwin and me if we would like to go back to the excavation site to do a bit of labour. You see, there was this Hasmonean tower from 2,200 years ago that was beginning to fall down, and there needed to be some reconstruction work on it. Now, naturally, we jumped at the opportunity to go back out to the site, even if it was for some more uh, unimportant work, you could say. As we got there, we were under the daily leadership of Dr. Ariel Vinderbaum again, and we began dismantling the wall. But it became more interesting. As we took away each layer of stones, it became more and more unstable, revealing that it was likely we would have to keep on removing stones before the whole tower could be built up again. Now eventually we came to the layest lower of stones. On one side of the, of the tower it was built on bedrock like you can see with these stones right here. On the other side it was built on earth which is why it started to crumble in the first place. Now excavating the earth underneath the lowest course of stones just on the other side of this wall here that I'm standing on we found something completely unexpected. We found absolutely nothing from the period of the Hasmoneans. Instead, we found, found a thick layer of grey clay directly under the wall. Inside that clay were two dogs that were most definitely buried there just before the construction of the wall. And inside that layer and those under it, we found only Persian period pottery, early Persian period pottery. Now, based on the dating of this pottery, it turned out that we had just been dismantling not a Hasmonean tower, but this was none other than part of the wall of the biblical Nehemiah that he built 2,500 years ago. Now, from start to finish, this, selfish, this was a selfless ex excavation. Dr. Mazar was not out to find Nehemiah's wall, but putting the archaeological data with the Bible, as Dr. Mazar did, that's what it turned out to be. 
Now if you're visiting the site in the city of David today, it's hard to really see the remains of this tower since most of it's dismantled. However, you will be able to see the stones that were part of Nehemiah's tower before we dismantled it. Some of these ones here and the ones further are part of that tower. Following the removal of Nehemiah's wall, Dr. Mazar now had the opportunity to excavate meters and meters of precious earth that was underneath that wall that was removed. And I say it's precious because this earth was full of remains from the time of Nehemiah all the way through to the destruction of the Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians in the earliest 6th century. So about 150 years of history. Now I'm standing where that earth was. To my right is the stepstone structure, a part of it known as the buttress. This is the most beautiful part of the stepstone structure, which supported the palace up above the bedrock over my head. Now at the start of 2007, uh, there was earth all through here. By the end of 2008, by the start of 2008, it was gone. Now at first, Dr. Fahi was the area supervisor in this area, and he and Dr. Mazar saw to it that every single bucket of dirt was wet sifted from here, meaning that every possible discovery was made from the earth. And inside that, those destruction layers and destruction earth from above, we found over a hundred seal impressions with ancient Hebrew writing written on them. One of them belonged to Gedaliah, the son of Pasher. Stunningly, this is an individual mentioned in the same biblical verse as Jeukal, the one that was discovered, the seal impression that was discovered in the palace area above. Now towards the end of the excavations, we uncovered the top layer of these stones, this stone wall beside me, that rests against bedrock. And as we peeled some of these rocks back from the top of this wall, we peered in with a torch and we noticed that we have a tunnel right behind this wall that runs about 60 meters underneath the stepstone structure and then further to the north. Now, Dr. Mazar was actually the first one in this tunnel. Once we uncovered it, we resisted the urge to jump in. Instead, we ran to get Dr. Mazar, and before long, Dr. Mazar slipped through this narrow passage uh, down here to my left. And at the time, we were kind of joking with her that she might not be able to fit through the passage, but she said with a grin famously, I may be fat, but I'm also smooth. And with that, she dashed into this tunnel, crawling on her hands and knees. She disappeared uh, to the north with a flashlight in hand. After about five minutes, I called out to her from here. I couldn't hear her, so I jumped in after her to find her. And I did find her, collecting pottery, of course, on the surface of the tunnel. Part of some of the assemblage that she found on the surface was an oil lamp from the time of Jeremiah. Now, as we would later discover through excavations of this tunnel, it was most likely constructed around the time period of King David. It's included in the construction of the stepstone structure as the tunnel runs directly underneath it. This was just another discovery that Dr. Elot Mazar made in 2008. After the excavations concluded in the city of David in 2008, Dr. Mazar returned to the Ophel area where I'm standing now just to the north of the city of David, below the southern wall of the Temple Mount. This excavation started in, 20, uh, in 2009, continued through to 2010, and really was a continuation of Dr. Mazar's excavations here in 1986 and 87. And as she is related, um, Dr. Benjamin Mazar was quite old at the time of those excavations, and it was because he co-directed her on that first dig here in 86 that she was granted the license to dig. Now what they discovered here on the Ophel back in 86 and 87 was the first gatehouse from biblical Jerusalem from the period of the kings ever to be discovered in Jerusalem. And these excavations in 09 and 10 were meant to prepare the area for a footbridge that I'm standing on today that so now people can visit here this first temple period gatehouse, an entrance to ancient Jerusalem. After leaving the excavations in 2008 at the city of David, Dr. Mazar went northward uh, to this area of the Ophel. 
And I had the privilege to working on that, on the working on that excavation. Right here I'm standing uh, with Harley Breath, another student from Armstrong College. And we were excavating a really small patch of dirt actually. It probably started about this high and it went down to bedrock and it was only about a meter by a meter. But crucially, this patch of dirt both uh, touched this wall to right here and also this other wall. Now this wall we could pretty firmly date to King Solomon's time based on excavations on the other side of it. But we didn't really have a really firm date for this wall, which if you look on the top, continues for another 50 or so meters this way and is actually looking like a city wall that abuts the Solomonic wall. Now, how, how late or after this Solomonic wall was this wall built? We didn't know at the time. And so Dr. Bazaar wanted to excavate these layers all the way down to the base of the wall to see if the same strata of soil were touching both and if we could get a date for these lowest layers, the lowest accumulation on the base of this wall. And indeed, as we went down all the way to the base of the wall, both the same strata of soil uh, did touch both walls. And in the lowest 20 centimeters, there was pottery, exclusively from the 10th century, the late 10th century, the time period of King Solomon. Now a really important discovery did take place also right here. It was unearthed in 2009, but it only came to light, to public light, in 2018. And that was the seal impression of Isaiah the prophet. All the dirt from here was taken to wet sifting, which means again, all the, the, the discoveries, the bullae and the, the small finds could be discovered. And it was, was confirmed, uh, well, it was, it was uh, documented that Isaiah the prophet had been found here from this excavation. And that same year, back in 2009, the Hezekiah bull, King Hezekiah, the first and only seal impression of a, uh, a Judean king from the biblical period to be found in controlled scientific excavations, took place right here in Dr. Mazar's excavation. That one was more easy to read. It got revealed to the public in 2015. This one of Isaiah waited until 2018. Yet both of them, again, found so closely, just on the Ophel, just outside of the Solomonic structure, just outside of the city wall from the biblical period. Now, what I'd like to do now is show you a video that was made by Armstrong College alumni uh, Samuel Livingston detailing the discovery of the Isaiah Bulla and its connection with King Hezekiah. In December 2015, Jerusalem archaeologist Elat Mazar announced the discovery of an ancient clay seal, or Bulla. The Bulla contained an astonishing inscription. It read, Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This tiny artifact carried a sensational message. This seal proved the existence of one of ancient Judah's greatest kings and proved the accuracy of the biblical record. Dr. Mazar didn't know it at the time, but another bulla bearing an intriguing inscription was waiting to be placed under her microscope. The Old Testament record shows that King Hezekiah was a contemporary of Isaiah the prophet. The biblical books of Kings, Chronicles, and Isaiah show that this prophet played a central role in Hezekiah's remarkable reign over Judah. Today we have indisputable scientific evidence proving the existence of King Hezekiah. But what about Hezekiah's chief counselor and one of the Bible's greatest prophets? Is there archaeological evidence proving the existence of the prophet Isaiah? Now, 
the bula of King Hezekiah was part of a of a uh, assemblage. He didn't come by itself. First, we published King Hezekiah's bula. That was the first thing. But then we studied the whole assemblage, and the whole assemblage contains more than thirty bula, and one of them attracted our special attention. We were very uh, skeptic at the very beginning. We didn't jump on the, the idea. It says Leishayahu. Okay, fine. This is quite a common name. And then it says Nun Bet Yud Navi, which is in Hebrew. If you just listen to it, to that Navi, it's a prophet. So wow, wow, wow! Leishayahu, the prophet. This is ha. Huh. I mean, and then you have something nearby, which is Chizkiyahu, the King Chizkiyahu, near uh, the prophet Ishayahu. <laughs> What uh, <laughs> fantastic! But then. We needed to study very carefully. The Isaiah Bulla was uncovered in 2009 during a small archaeological excavation on the Ophel. The Ophel area is located adjacent south of the Temple Mount, and has furnished numerous important artifacts since it first began to be excavated in 1968. The Isaiah Bulla was discovered in an area adjacent. To what archaeological evidence suggests was a royal bakery from the first temple period. The bread that we were excavating is just below us. So where King Hezekiah Buddha was found, just below here, where Brent is standing, and then the whole assemblage was spreading all over. So we first published this one, and then worked on the other bulla just as well, as well as on figurines and other important items. And just on the other side of this, the same assemblage, just on the other side of that Herodian wall that was disturbing that assemblage in its middle, that we found another bulla that is of Isaiah. The bulla is small and can be divided into three zones or lines. The challenge when studying the Isaiah seal is that part of the bulla is missing, and part is damaged. The damage was caused by a finger pressing against the soft clay when the seal was first created, almost 2,700 years ago. You can still see the fingerprints. The fact that part of the seal is missing does not affect its interpretation. This is because the missing section is inscribed with an image or motif and not text. Dr. Mazar believes it was the image of a grazing doe, symbolizing prosperity. The text on the second line reads, "Yeshayahu." Although one letter is missing, there is only one viable option for the identity of the missing letter. It can only be the Hebrew letter Vav. So the text on the second line is indisputable. It reads, "Yeshayahu." This is the Hebrew word for Isaiah. But is this Isaiah the prophet? The text on the third line is incomplete, due to the damage sustained to the bulla's left side. Three letters can be deciphered, however, and together they read Navi. Archaeologist Reut Ben Ariyeh has studied the bulla and explains why the missing letter is most likely an aleph, making the second word Navi or prophet. Among all the bulla from the excavation in the Ophel, we found this one. Uh, in its middle field, 
there was the name Ishaya. So it was very exciting to read in its lower field the letters Nun Bet Yud, which suggest the word Navi, prophet. But there were two problems with this suggestion. First, the word Navi is usually written with the letter Aleph in the end. Second, most of the time in Biblical Hebrew, titles after private names appears, appear with a definite article, the, and we don't have that in our Bula. So it was more reasonable to say that it is a private name, Novi or Novai, that is known from the Bible and also from epigraphic findings. But by examining the Bula, I noticed that the borderline is seen only on its right edge and not on, on the left edge, which means the impression is not complete. If we continue the borderline, we can see that there is a space for two more letters in the middle register and for one letter in the lower one. Usually there is no empty space in the seal, so it makes sense to insert the letters Vav, He and Aleph and to suggest that this bula was impressed by the seal of Ishayahu Hanavi, Isaiah the prophet. While the presence of an Aleph is possible and even likely, there are other interpretations. Professor Shmuel Ahituv is an expert epigraphist and suggests Navi could refer to a place or surname. It belonged to Isaiah, but that's all. Uh, because uh, it says Navi, Nun Bet Yod, which means Navi. But it lacks the Aleph. Perhaps Navi is to be pronounced Novi, Novai, or something else. Then that's a citizen or town of Nov. But of course, it can't be Navi, prophet. As I said, the lack of the Aleph. When we in modern Hebrew, maybe, pronounce the name Navi, you don't feel, you don't hear the Aleph, but it was felt, it was pronounced. Although there are other explanations, the weight of evidence strongly indicates that this is the seal impression of Isaiah the prophet. Consider, first, it is indisputable that this seal is inscribed with the Hebrew name for Isaiah. While this name was undoubtedly common in ancient Judah, it is rare for an individual to have his own private seal. Only important officials or royalty bore their own private seal, so whoever this Isaiah was, he was important. Second, the position of the text in relation to the outer edge of the bulla suggests that there is space in which added lettering would almost certainly have existed. Third, Consider, too, that there are only three potential options for the identity of the missing letter in Navi. The most logical and the most natural explanation is that it was an Aleph. With an Aleph, the word Navi means prophet. Fourth, and most importantly, consider the archaeological context in which this bulla was uncovered. The Isaiah bulla was uncovered at the same time as the Hezekiah bulla, in the same location, in the same assemblage, and in exactly the same strata of soil. What are the chances that we have 
just the name of somebody, Yeshayahu, and his first family name is Navi. It can be, but it's kind of imaginary. Really? These two bulan, of these two people that were so closely together described in the Bible, are found in the same layer, just one meter at a distance from each other. The same context, the same layer. So it strikes very clearly that we are talking about the same two people. And to think it is not this person, it's another Yeshayahu. And his name is Navi, which is a prophet in Hebrew, okay, missing the Aleph still, it can be there. And his name is Navi, the family name is Navi. It's, it's a, <laughs> not only, only imaginary kind of, it's, it's, it seems like it can't be. In 2012 and 2013, Dr. Elot Mazar returned to excavate a larger area further to north on the Ophel. Now these were massive excavations that were documented real-time on our excavation blog, keytodavidcity.com. These excavations were sponsored by Daniel Mintz and Meredith Berkman, as well as the season in 20, 2009 and 10. On these excavations, more of Solomonic Jerusalem was discovered. And as you can see from this map, there, is, there are many 10th century buildings uncovered in that excavation. Now, critically, these excavations contribute to our understanding of Jerusalem at the time of the United Monarchy, David and Solomon, when some say that Jerusalem was still a cow town not worthy of mention. Now, these excavations on the Ophel should put to rest that notion. However, of course, the debate does continue. Now, Dr. Mazar's discoveries weren't just limited to the biblical period, though. In fact, one of her most stunning discoveries was from only 1400 years ago, and that was discovered right here above me to the right. This is the discovery of the menorah medallion. This next video I'd like to show you was produced to announce the discovery of the medallion. Video, uh, medallion. There's also a Hebrew version of this video as well online. I'll leave a link for you to, to watch that. This video was created by Armstrong College student, Mr. Jesse Hester. This rare find was discovered just 50 meters south of the Temple Mount inside a Byzantine structure that dates back to the 6th century of the Common Era. It's a magnificent collection of fine Byzantine jewelry, coins, and a large medallion with Jewish symbols. Most of it is made of pure gold. The collection had most likely been carefully packed and hidden by a prominent group of Jews during the Persian conquest of Jerusalem at the beginning of the 7th century CE. Just like the massive stones King Solomon used to build his royal complex, this newly discovered treasure of precious jewels and rare coins, after being buried in the earth for 14 centuries, revives a riveting and powerful testimony from a long-forgotten chapter in the 3,000-year-old history of Jewish Jerusalem. So I took a small uh, axe and I started digging there and within a few minutes I found this what I thought was a copper um, earring. You know, two minutes later I, I found another one. Achinam was like, it's, of course it's earring, it's got to be earrings. It's uh, very shiny, 
but uh, we said because it's shiny and clean, we, we think it's modern, but then we uh, find a, a coin. Really shiny, uh, you know, quarter sized about. And then we find more one and more and more and more. So then Ariel, he took it, he showed a lot. When we came here, we uh, immediately noticed the uh, tiled pavement that was uh, appearing uh, here and there in the area. We understood that we have uh, a clear, clean Byzantine layer with what was, uh, was obvious uh, special finds. They told me, you know, don't dig here with any hard tools, just take a paintbrush and we got to find where it's coming from. We have to find the source of where the coins are coming from. Automatically I started seeing this trail of just these gold coins like flowing down from the wall. I was like in shock. I like couldn't talk. I was like, I know. I'm like, look, 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 did you see these things? We came there with a the metal detector and uh, I told them, you got to put it in this one area. It's going to go nuts. I know there's something there. That's where the coins were. That's where the ear earrings were. You to just, just put the metal detector there. And it just started going crazy. They told me automatically to immediately to switch to a smaller paintbrush. So I started dusting there. All of a sudden I start seeing what I thought was just another coin, but it was definitely bigger and started growing more and more, like You're going more and more and more and we understand it's not a coin. Achinoam and I are just like wide-eyed, we're just like with our mouths wide open. It's a, it's a very big. And I was like telling them you have to come see it, it's like huge and they're like sitting there talking about all the other things and like yelling at them, come look at it, come look at it. And then we see a menorah. My eyes were like lit up, I'd never seen something like that in my life. Ela comes over to me and she, she grabs me and she like kisses me on the head and she's like, my, in my entire life, I've never seen anything like this beautiful. Little by little, we found out that actually it's uh, a very uh, large medallion. And we continued to, to, to dig around the, around the find because it was really inside the, inside the dirt. Uh, and we started, we started to see the, the, the two symbols around the menorah, is the shofar and the Torah scrolls. After the finds had been carefully excavated and removed from the site, Dr. Mazar had the treasure analyzed by a team of scholars at the Institute of Archaeology on the campus of Hebrew University, located about two miles north of the Ophel, on top of Mount Scopus. Established in 1925, today Hebrew University is one of the largest and most important academic centers in Israel. These objects, these gold objects, arrived immediately uh, from the excavation of Elat Mazar in the Ophel. Of course, the uh, first uh, things I did uh, was to record it uh, by filming it. I um, did uh, some uh, records and, uh, um, of course, uh, after it, I began to clean it uh, very, very, very uh, delicately. Immediately, I saw that the uh, silver parts of bracelet, I saw that the corrosion products really immigrate into uh, the necklace and they uh, just adhere and they penetrate into the structure of the uh, necklace. Uh, so I had to um, separate it very, very uh, delicately using uh, a different uh, kind of uh, scalpel blades. When I uh, separated, and of course everything was done under the binocular, under the microscope, I saw that I have some uh, remains of fabric 
on the top of the uh, silver and in the corrosion of the silver. Later, we, uh, both of us, and, uh, Elat and me, decided to do some, uh, you know, uh, preliminary uh, analysis of the metal uh, by portable XRF machine. It is only a, a very first step, but still there is a need for further analysis and work needed. The hoard was found in a Byzantine structure where it is just 50 meters south of the southern wall of the Temple Mount and the Triple Gate where the Jewish people in the Second Temple period went in. And here it was found just under a surface layer. The hoard was separated into two major packages. One that was a bit better hidden contained the medallion and the necklace, another small medallion and this uh, holder of what seems to be the Torah school. Some fabric that was found on this uh, holder uh, probably held them all together. The other purse of the items that were found all around, uh, nearby but still scattered, contained the 36 coins, the earrings, heavy earrings, most probably a property of some wealthy woman, uh, the silver ingot, and the, another hanger of such a bracelet that was broken, so that's why it was kept in the other purse. The other purse meant to be used as, you know, money, as money to buy, most probably a property in this uh, time that uh, Jewish people came to Jerusalem for, to buy uh, structures, to build synagogues, and most probably even to build the temple itself. The Ophel Hort contains 36 gold coins. The coins themselves are a unique find. This is only, the, with all the archaeological work been done in Jerusalem in the last 100 years, this is the only the third gold hoard to be found. The hoard was perhaps in the beginning significantly bigger because it is possible that coins uh, were melted down for the production of the medallion. The, the finds can be divided into two main chronological groups. The first group, uh, contains uh, 10 gold coins from the 4th century, uh, from the day of Constantinus II to the day of uh, Garatian. Then there is a gap of about 150-160 years till the coins of the uh, 6th century. Coins of the 6th century are the main bulk of the hoard. 26 coins are from this century and out of them 14 are coins of Justine II. The latest coins uh, in the hoard are uh, two coins of Maurik that were issued between 582 till 601 CE. So we know that, that the hoard were uh, hidden after the latest date on the coins. The, the coins give us the date of, of all the hoard. All of these uh, conclusions uh, leading us to suggest that the best uh, possible date is between the Persian conquest and the recapture of the Jerusalem by the Byzantine in 628-29 CE. While the Byzantine coins reveal crucial details about the time period in which the treasure was hidden, what can we learn about the people who buried it? We know when they hid it, but why? For answers, we turn to the revealing symbols adorning the large gold medallion. I found out that uh, the menorah itself 
the symbol of the menorah, the seven branch candelabra, is very common in the, in the Byzantine period. But this medallion has some uh, unique feature, mainly the attributes that are going with the menorah. In both sides of uh, that uh, medallion, there were uh, a shofar, a ram's horn. Uh, this is a common symbol. But in the other side, there was some kind of uh, a round symbol. It looks like a round object with uh, a road that uh, protrudes from both sides. This symbol is the scroll of law. Most of the objects uh, with uh, the scroll of law on them were found outside of the area of Israel, mainly in Rome or other places abroad. So could be that this symbol was a symbol that they use mainly outside of the perimeter of the area of Israel. And the meaning of that is could be that the medallion itself was made outside of Israel and was brought by some people that came during a period where it was allowed to Jews to return to Jerusalem. The closing parallel uh, for the medallion from the Ophel excavations is a medallion that is found in the Jewish Museum in London. There is a menorah very, very similar to the menorah in the medallion from the Ophel. There is a shofar from one side and the scroll of law from the other side. Above it, there is a special feature, and that's an inscription engraved on it. The inscription uh, is saying, this is the donation of Jacob, Archogoi in Greek. The meaning of it is actually the head of the synagogue or the head of the community. The, the last word is the pearl setter the setter of pearls. So it, it was, from one side, the head of the Jewish community, and from the other, the other side, it was also probably a very wealthy man um, good, with a good posi uh, position and could afford himself to donate something so important from gold to the community. If we take this parallel and compare it to the medallion from the Ophel, we see that both medallions were meant to be hung on some object, and uh, already uh, the curator of the Jewish London Museum suggested that his medallion was meant to be put on a scroll of law. If you compare our medallion, probably it meant to be, to be in the same place, uh, on a scroll of law. Today, a scroll of law, and sometimes several scrolls, can be found in every synagogue. All of them are housed inside Torah cases, some of which are most beautifully decorated, even adorned with precious medallions and meaningful symbols that were common millennia ago. One should ask himself, what, what this hoard is all about? We know that we are talking about the beginning of the 7th century. This is the time where the Persians conquered Jerusalem. 
and the Jewish people helped them a great deal conquer Israel and Jerusalem. And the Jewish people were promised by the Persians that when Jerusalem is captured, they are going to have the opportunity to build it as a Jewish city. And they had this fantastic uh, hopes uh, first time after so long that they were forbidden from being in Jerusalem and not to mention settling the city. But then again, they didn't realize that this is not going to last long because the Persians calculated their benefit. It was not beneficial to stay allies with the very few Jewish people, relatively few. And uh, we see here a most tangible um, a situation where we can see that the history actually takes shape and uh, the Jewish people that came and were very near the temple itself, uh, the temple site, uh, they had to desert this horde, run for their life, leave the horde behind them, leave their hopes uh, behind them and maybe even not been able to rescue their lives because they never came back to rescue the horde. Nowadays, to reveal such a treasure makes one think and appreciate what we have in Jerusalem nowadays as the capital of the Jewish state. The seven-lamp candlestick, known as the menorah, has been an enduring symbol of Israel since the days of Moses. It was one of the most important vessels inside the temple at Jerusalem. The first century historian Josephus tells us that during the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Roman victors captured the menorah and took it to Rome. This heart-rending scene is powerfully depicted in stone on the Arch of Titus in Rome. But though the temple was destroyed and its menorah removed, the deeply symbolic meaning of the seven-lamp candlestick has stood firm in the hearts and minds of Jews everywhere like the 15-foot bronze menorah sculpture that stands proudly in a small plaza across the street from Israel's Knesset in Jerusalem. It's for all good reasons that the official emblem of the State of Israel today is the seven-lamp menorah. Finally, in the year 2018, after a four-year hiatus, Dr. Mazar and her team returned to the excavations on the Ophel, and one of her main focuses was excavating this cave here behind me that we started in 2013, but only completed the work in 2018. And this year, Armstrong College Chancellor Gerald Flurry decided to not only send student volunteers, but also fund the excavations as well. Now, the discoveries from this excavation would be the last of Dr. Mazar's to make international headlines. Here is a video announcing the discovery of what we found in here, made by Armstrong College alumni Albert Clark. The cave was used in three major phases. The earliest one is the Hashmonaim one, which we found in quite a thick layer at the bottom of the cave. And this we can see just at the back on the floor of the cave. The pottery and the coins from this layer are very clear Hashmonaim. This is just through the days of King Herod, but not later. The second phase is most interesting one just as well and it includes remains from the second temple period 
up to 70 CE, to the dis very destruction of Jerusalem and conquered by the Romans. What we found here, first, it is amazing that such a large cave was sealed since 2,000 years ago and never used again. We know it for certain. The assemblage for the pottery is very significant, only to the Second Temple period and no later than 70 CE. And then we have dozens and dozens of coins. What is so fantastic about these coins that it does indicate that we're talking about an existing an acknowledgement and use of this cave by the rebels of, of Jerusalem, the Jewish rebels, uh, up to the very last minute of the last year of the, of the four years of the rebellions, meaning the rebellions four years are 66 to 70 CE, meaning to the last minute of 70. How we know that? The coins bear the symbols, Jewish symbols, the, the four pieces of, of uh, biblical times that we know that were used in the temple, and also a goblet that was used in the, in the cult in the, in the temple. Symbols, Jewish symbols that are very, uh, very well known. But in addition to these symbols, there is a clear Hebrew inscription saying to the freedom of Zion, and in the last year, it came to be to the redemption of Zion. And it says, year two or year three, and the last year is year four. So on one side to the redemption of Zion, on the other side, year four. And such coins, very clear, because they were not used for a long time and maybe not so used at all. Last year they were mint, and we have dozens of these coins in this cave. So it's not an unusual a phenomena that we can come to such a closed cave, untouched, 2,000 years, including the very last remains of life of the people who were uh, sieged in Jerusalem, suffered in Jerusalem, um, to the very last minute of the Second Temple period. So this cave that we concluded this season to excavate is of a specific and most interesting story in the history of Jerusalem. As you can see from what we've covered today, Dr. Mazar's discoveries in Jerusalem are unrivaled in the history of archaeology in this city. As a towering figure, she stands as the dominant force that pushed Jerusalem archaeology forward, particularly in relation to the time periods of King David and, and King Solomon. But she also took equal care in those later periods as well, as we've seen. Although she is a dominant figure on the dig, we can't forget that Dr. Mazar was also a mother to many. Elot had only two priorities in her life, her work and her family. That's literally all, the, all, the, all she had time for. Now, thankfully, when you participate in her work with her, you do also become part of her family, as many people all over the world can attest. For me, it's been an absolute honor to be a part of her discoveries, but in some ways, equally, if not more important, it was an honor to be a part of her life. 
her archaeological discoveries would not have been made without that character. Her memory will also always be a blessing to those who knew her, and may we all work to preserve, uphold, and continue her legacy. Dr. Elot Mazar, you will be missed. <laughs>